Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another Down the Hatch podcast. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Heather Starmer. She's a superstar of clinical speech language pathologists. The reason that Alicia and I, your co-hosts, know Heather Starmer is because for a period of time, um, several years, we all overlapped at Johns Hopkins University. Um, If I recall correctly, Alicia and Heather worked as clinical speech pathologists. Heather was in the ENT department, and Alicia was in the same department as as I was in physical medicine and rehab. And I got to know Heather well because she was uh, interested in publishing some data related to her head and neck cancer populations who had various doses of radiation to the submental region, and she wanted to work on some kinematic analyses. So we worked closely on that, and so I got to know Heather in that context. Since then, um, I've known Heather to be one of the um, few speech-language pathologists who does not have a PhD, but everybody assumes has a PhD because her research experience has been so extensive. So I just want everybody to welcome Heather. Um, the topic today is head and neck cancer, but I'd also really love to delve into a bit about your path, Heather, and how you came to the field, how you came to head and neck cancer, and how you came to research. So why don't you introduce yourself? All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you both for having me here. It's a delight. I've been a a fan of the podcast and it's nice to be on here talking about something that is my love and passion. Um, So I started off, um, interestingly enough, I've had a very strange path as I found most of us have, but I started as a theater major when I started in my college path and realized very quickly that that was not the life for me. Um, So I I started working with kids with special needs and in that process uh, learned a little bit about speech pathology and started exploring that as a a new career path, uh, thinking at the time that I would work with kids with special needs. And uh, as I was going through my undergraduate work, I experienced my grandmother having a stroke and the repercussions of uh, some of those things and seeing her going through the rehab process. And I thought, well, that's actually kind of cool. I like this idea of working with adults. Uh, so So I started thinking about the adult piece more and reading up about swallowing and thinking, oh, that sounds really cool. And then I went and observed a speech pathologist uh, at Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara uh, do a swallow study on an esophagectomy patient. And I was like, oh yeah, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, so from that point on, I went to University of Pittsburgh to do my uh, graduate degree and worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Pittsburgh during uh, my master's and then for a number of years after. And that's where I started getting a lot of the exposure to the head and neck population. Um, and Uh, Working with the head and neck population at the VA really helped me to further sort of focus my interest um, uh, beyond just swallowing in general to to the head and neck population. Um, I was there for a number of years and then ended up moving back to Baltimore and uh, ending up at Johns Hopkins where I worked in the ENT department doing a combination of sort of more traditional voice swallowing and head and neck. Um, But head and neck was always sort of my biggest love. Um, And then about five, a little over five years ago, I was um, asked to build a head and neck program here at Stanford University in California. And being a California native, it was the perfect opportunity for me to, um, you know, return home and uh, further build on um, what I'm really interested in in terms of head and neck. And so it's been a great opportunity because um, since I started at Hopkins, I really developed a lot of interest in um, doing clinical research and trying to answer the questions that I had about my patients. And, you know, like most people who finish a master's degree, I didn't have any more formal training in terms of research, um, but I knew it was something that was really important to me and to my patients. And so uh, I started doing some self-studying. I started taking some uh, clinical research classes at Johns Hopkins, um, partnering with really fantastic established researchers like yourself, Ianessa, um, and getting really great high-level mentoring from other people, um, particularly in the ENT department at Hopkins. 
And so since that time, I've just sort of taken off with, you know, when I have a question, I try to figure out how can I answer this question and um, building a, a nice uh, community of people who are also interested in head and neck cancer and, and research in this area. And that's where I am now. Wow. Really, really interesting um, to hear your path. Alicia, did you want to jump in with anything before I ask a sort of the launching question? <laughs> well, that's very um, foreshadowing. Um, I guess you have a launching question coming, Heather. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that, um, you know, what's really cool about your story, Heather, is that I think a lot of clinicians that listen are really interested in getting more involved and in research or getting more involved in, in any sort of capacity to better understand how to make their patients lives better by delivering the best type of therapy and what's the right approach and for some people it's not about doing research it's about better understanding the research that's out there and i think that um, you know, you've just been a really great model to myself as well um, when we were both at Hopkins to see the research that you were doing and to say, hey, I didn't realize that this was possible for, for a clinician that isn't going on a PhD directory uh, or direction. And, you know, when I was, when I was working clinically before I started um, doing my PhD, that's what sort of gave me the the confidence, I would say, to to reach out to Ianessa. And I started working with Ianessa as a clinician. And part of it was just seeing what Heather had been doing and was able to look at, at what was happening and say, hey, I can, wow, okay, I can do that too. I think sometimes there's a feeling that you have to be one or the other. You either have to be a clinician or you have to be a researcher and there's no in between. And seeing the work that you were doing made me realize that that's entirely possible. It's very, um, you know, you don't have to be in an ideal work setting surrounded by tons of researchers. It's just about being committed to, um, to doing that and just having the confidence to do it and to reach out to, to the right people. And I would argue that clinicians are supposed to be researchers of their own practice. Maybe they're not researchers of practice in a global sense, the way that researchers are, where they get data from all kinds of places, but they should at least be acute, uh, really informed studiers of what they're doing. Um, so let me jump in with the first question that comes to mind, which is, uh, Heather, you obviously have a lot of experience with head and neck cancer. Can you name, I don't know, maybe three or two or five things that you believe that or that you wish most speech language pathologists knew or know about head and neck cancer, either the population or the diagnosis or the treatment? What would you say the top few things are um, that people should really be aware of when approaching this population? That's a great leading question. That will fill up like all of the time anybody has in the rest of their life to listen to <laughs> Great question. So I think there are probably three key pieces um, that I would, would really want to highlight, and then there's some like subheading pieces. Um, but I think one of the, the biggest key pieces that um, clinicians need to understand about head and neck cancer is that the pathophysiology of the dysphagia associated with head and neck cancer is really unique from almost every other population that we work with. So we have patients, we have some patients that have completely structural deficits. And so when you take parts away, that changes quite a bit about how we manage those patients and rehabilitate those patients. And then in the case of the patients who have had radiation therapy, um, the, the kinds of swallowing problems that those patients have are related a lot more to fibrosis and scarring and lack of mobility rather than weakness. There can be a weakness component, particularly if somebody is NPO for a period of time, but instead of always thinking about throwing this kitchen sink at them with strengthening exercises, most of these patients need a very different approach, approach to their rehab. Okay. Um, and so when you say mobility, so you're talking about range of motion, what kind of exercises are you referring to for um, some of the issues with fibrosis um, due to radiation treatment? 
Yeah, so I think there, there are two main categories of ways of thinking of these patients. I think the first and most important is the aspect of prevention. So we know that when radiation and chemoradiation became the mainstay of treatment for head and neck cancer patients um, in the 90s, there was this thought that because we weren't taking parts out of patients, we were actually maintaining the function of those parts. And what became very evident over time is that patients weren't having maintenance of function, even though the parts were left in place. And so what we what what happened in the early days of this chemoradiation boom was patients were given a feeding tube and told, you know, this is really hard treatment. You don't even worry about swallowing the whole time that you're going through this treatment. And these patients wouldn't use their their muscles at all over the you know, two-month course of treatment, and for many of them, for many months after that treatment. And so they'd have this very prolonged period of time where they weren't moving anything. And what we found later is that these patients would develop these very uh, stiff fibrotic um, areas right in the swallowing, the most important structures of swallowing that were preventing their ability to swallow safely and efficiently. And so what we've learned over time is that the key is to try to prevent that from happening. And so um, most of, of the individual clinicians working with head and neck cancer patients will advocate very strongly for a prophylactic approach to these patients. So starting swallowing exercises, jaw range of motion exercises, neck range of motion exercises at the beginning of radiation and continuing those on. Alicia, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to ask a quick question as a follow-up to what was just said so it doesn't get missed. Something that I find really interesting about head and neck cancer and when I read about it and I learn about it and the treatment approach, the prevention and um, all of that that you just talked about, Heather, is I think that we need to appreciate that there's a lot of principles about the way head and neck cancer therapy is approached in head and neck cancer that can be extrapolated and the principles be applied to other um, disorders. So, for example, when you talked about the prevention, do you think that, you know, one of the main rationales for providing patients with therapy so early is that as the swallowing structures and the physiology is changing over time as they're going through radiation, that allowing the patients to continue eating or, or providing exercises allows the system to be able to update a motor plan. So it, the swallowing system is changing. So patients are going through radiation and by allowing them to, to challenge them and allow them to eat, they're allowed to adapt to those changes that are happening from the radiation and compensate accordingly because they have all of these experiences that are happening so that they don't lose function. Is that part of the theory behind the preventative prophylactic approach to head and neck cancer? Yeah, I think that I think there are probably three main things that that um, sort of use it or lose it tenant um, uh, mm -hmm. impact this patient population. I think. One is certainly prevention of atrophy, right? If we're not using the muscles, they get weak. That's sort of the easy no-brainer part. Um, I think the second part being that idea of the exercises aren't just functioning at normal levels, but trying to take, take movement beyond normal movement levels so that we're trying to maintain range of motion and limit fibrosis. But I think you're absolutely right that there is a, a very gradual change. So the impacts of radiation don't hit all at one time. It is a gradual change and impact. So we get edema, we get pain, we get changes in salivation, we get changes in taste, and all of these things are happening um, in a very nonlinear fashion as the patient's going through treatment. And I think there certainly is some sort of um, adaptation that patients are able to do if they continue using the system in that period right. of change versus if you stop swallowing at the beginning when everything is normal and then try to start swallowing again three months later, you've sort of lost that opportunity to, to lay down that new motor pathway or new motor pattern. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so 
Uh, I was going to say that uh, one thing that I've always thought was unique about the pre about the uh, head and neck population is this idea of before and after some known uh, medical intervention. So they can have iatrogenic or uh, iatrogenic or uh, some problem that's because of a treatment that we we apply. So they could start out really good. And because of some surgery, we know that they're going to have problems. Um, or the reverse can happen is they could be really bad, like they have a tumor, and then you take that tumor out and actually they can improve. So it's one of the few populations where there's a before and after that you can actually test or that you can observe or that you can predict and say, we, we expect that taking out this growth will improve in your situation. You don't have any, you know, other issues and uh, maybe anticipates some things there. But what's also interesting is I've heard from other clinicians related to, um, to your question, Alicia, which is so insightful because a lot of times when people have some kind of a growth or a problem they've been living with, they've adapted that for, for a while. And by the time they come in and get it removed or, or fixed in some way, they have to de-adapt. So there's no guarantee that taking out a growth means, boom, they're back to normal because their physiology has been sort of adapting around that um, problem for a while. So it's kind of interesting. Absolutely. I mean, it, that that reminds me of, you know, when we think about when people have their tonsils taken out, even kids, sure. when they're taken out for no reason, right? They've learned to work around this gigantic tonsils and they become hypernasal after those tonsils are removed. And there's an adaptation period where they have to learn to get better velopharyngeal closure. So absolutely. And um, we definitely see that in, in our patients. And I think you're right that it's, there, it's a, a luxurious position to be in to be able to see your patient before before the injury of treatment. Now, like you said, sometimes patients are at baseline already coming in with a level of dysfunction, but mm -hmm. we do have the luxury. It's not like somebody's gonna come in and say like, oh, well, I'm gonna have a stroke in a couple of weeks. Could you see what my baseline function is like so we can prognosticate how I'll look after? Yeah, really. Yeah, like so I'm going to a bacon festival, so uh, look, right? <laughs> so another another thing that I think is kind of interesting is that I find that your uh, specialty has the luxury, speaking of luxuries, to work way more closely with a physician group that understands what you're doing. So I think when I was, uh, Alicia, tell me what you feel about this, but when you're dealing with respiratory therapists and pulmonologists, they have an understanding in terms of what their roles are, but they're both working on breathing. When we were in physical medicine and rehab, um, the PTs and the physiatrists seemed to have a conversation, a level of conversation I could never have with them because the physiatrist really understood locomotion or whatever it was, and the PT did as well. But then you get to ENT, and I find that the conversation, the teamwork involved is so much better than sort of the neuro groups. And that goes for acute um, incidences like TBI and stroke, where a lot of the physicians don't understand swallowing physiology all the way to neurodegenerative popu neurodegenerative populations where you're dealing with people and movement disorders those neurologists again don't seem to understand quite as much about swallowing as ENTs do um, what do you think about that guys I would interesting I, I mean I, I guess I'll I'll let Heather speak on this mostly but I will say that um, Heather would you agree that that is completely dependent upon the initiative by the speech pathologist to develop and maintain that type of relationship and level of mutual respect with their patients. I mean, I think I've seen it both ways where I, I think that um, there is a, a really great opportunity for that type of relationship to happen. And I think that the, patients benefit exponentially when the physicians, especially the ENTs and the speech pathologists are on the same page. And it, you know, it works really well when you have a multidisciplinary head and neck cancer program where, you know, patients come in and they're seen by the nurse practitioner who specializes in head and neck and the ENT and the speech pathologist and everybody's meeting together and on the same page. But I think that those models don't exist everywhere, but they, but the potential is so great for that to occur if, if the um, steps are taken to establish it. It's not just present by itself. 
I would agree. I, I think that when I think back to my time working at the VA, for instance, um, when I was really working across the entire acute care um, hospital, inpatient, outpatient, head and neck, neuro, everything, um, I think that generally speaking, the physicians that I work with now in a more specialty practice and the ENT world do seem to have a better understanding. But I would also say that um, we shouldn't assume that because ENTs can have that knowledge, that they all have that knowledge. And uh, I've definitely, you know, had to do a lot of education and training. I will tell you that when I was interviewing at Stanford, there was a particular person here who sort of said, I did my grand rounds talk. It was an hour of nothing but presenting the literature. And the person said, well, that's fine and good. I guess I don't see anything wrong with it. Patients would probably like it, but I don't understand what the data is. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have a tough, uh, a tough hill to climb with this pers person. Um, and with that advocacy, meeting with the person once I came on faculty, getting the referrals, that person seeing the benefit of what we were doing, talking about how the surgeries were going to impact the patient, talking about uh, what we needed to do after the fact, that individual now is completely on board, totally understands why speech pathologists are critical in this population, whereas five years ago, complete non-believer. Like, yeah, this is nice fluffy candy, but um, I don't see how it could actually be helpful. So I do think there's a huge, we play a huge role in setting that. Um, and we have to start by, and this is one of the, one of the um, soapboxes I've heard you guys say more than once, we have to be the experts. And so if we want to have that really great relationship with our physician colleagues, we have to start by really knowing our stuff and being able to have the conversations with them. But I do find that this is the group of professionals that I've had the most success um, in doing that with. So let me ask you this, guys. What just happened here? The first time I tried to be positive on this podcast and I was wrong. <laughs> I like tried to throw a dog a bone and it's like, damn. Okay. So I was hoping somebody <laughs> knew something. <laughs> um, so have, uh, Heather, what about chemo? You talked about structural or you talked about mm -hmm. surgery. You talked about, chemo, uh, you talked about radiation therapy. Yeah. What about chemo? Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of the problems can be? related to sure. that? Sure. So in the head and neck population, um, when you're talking about curative intent treatment, so something that they think they have a chance to cure, um, chemotherapy is predominantly used as a sensitizer for radiation, meaning that the chemotherapy will help the radiation work better, meaning it amplifies the curative aspects of radiation and also the side effects of radiation. So when you combine radiation and chemotherapy together, you're more likely to have more severe acute toxicities like mucositis, taste changes, xerostomia, and you're also more likely to have the chronic toxicities of dysphagia. In and of itself, chemotherapy in head and neck cancer is usually given in smaller doses than you would see in other populations. So you don't see a lot of toxicity specifically attributed to the chemotherapy. Um, the most common things that you'll see that are really chemo-driven are potential for hearing loss um, or damage um, to the auditory mechanism or peripheral neuropathy. So neither of those really come into play from a swallowing perspective per se. Um, so usually that we think about the chemotherapy as being more of a amplifier of the radiation injury. Okay. Okay, but some of the sequela are? Uh, so some of the sequela of the radiation or the chemotherapy? The chemo specifically. is yeah. like So mucositis you t mentioned? Yeah, so mucositis is sort of ulcerations within the oral cavity or the pharynx. Um, that's a fairly common side effect of chemotherapy on its own, right. but also a very common side effect of radiation therapy on its own. So either one of those is very likely to cause mucositis. Okay. Um, chemotherapy alone, you may also experience, um, particularly with cisplatin, which is one of the main chemotherapy agents used. Um, ototoxicity is a very common side effect for that. So um, one of the things that they'll usually do is test hearing before patients have that drug to make sure that they're not going to be already at a diminished capacity. Mm -hmm. um, peripheral neuropathy, so numbness, tingling of the fingers and toes, 
Um, sometimes that will come into play later down the road if we're trying to do certain things with our patients and they, they've lost some of their sort of manual dexterity because of that um, sensory issue. Um, they can get some issues with nausea and vomiting during chemotherapy. Um, the key really is a, a very robust, experienced oncology care team. If you are pre-medicating, that's almost never an issue. Um, but if you give somebody chemotherapy without giving them antiemetics, they're probably going to have nausea and or vomiting. Um, but the good news mm -hmm. is that you know, in most places where they do a lot of this, they've got it figured out. They know they know the doses to sort of keep those toxicities at bay. It's like taking yeah. Advil long before your cramps start. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the prophylactic ap approach and wanting patients to, you know, maintain an oral diet as much as they can throughout the radiation or chemotherapy, what are the what would you say are the major barriers to patients being able to do that? You mentioned mucositis and that immediately just, you know, triggered for me that, that sometimes the mucositis can be so bad for patients that you just can't even imagine them eating or drinking at all. And I, I know that that has to be one of the top barriers to maintaining an oral diet. Are there other things or what would you say are, you know, sort of those, those difficult points throughout the process for these patients. Absolutely. So I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, the assumption that mucositis and the pain that comes from having ulcers throughout your mouth and throat is probably the biggest barrier for most patients. Now, the mm -hmm. good news is that uh, about, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago, uh, when I was still at Hopkins, we had, uh, Harry Kwan was a radiation oncologist who joined us from Penn. And I noticed that my patients were tolerating treatment really well out of nowhere. And I said to him, you know, Harry, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's the way that you're planning the radiation or if something is wrong with the machine and they're not getting radiation. But these patients, <laughs> well, I literally said, I was like, I think they might not be turning on the machine. I don't know what's going on. And he said, oh, it's gabapentin. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I treat the patients with gabapentin prophylactically to block the ability of the of the brainstem to process the pain signal. Wow. And I said, if that wow. is true, and that is having this impact, this could dramatically change what happens to these patients. And so we did an initial study looking at um, how pa our patients did when they were being treated with gabapentin and when they went through radiation. We found that our patients, at that time at Hopkins, we were still putting in prophylactic pegs on everybody. So we were looking at, did the patients use their feeding tubes? How long did they need their feeding tubes? How well was their pain managed? And then after their treatment was done, we looked at what their swallow function looked like um, and compared them to a historical cohort of patients treated with basically the same treatment, but standard narcotic medications. And what we found is pretty much across the board, the patients who had received gabapentin did better in everything. They either didn't use their tube or they used it much later in treatment. They used their tube for shorter periods of time. They uh, had their tubes out quicker. Their immediate swallow function, um, all of the pharyngeal parameters that were, um, that were measured, we're using sort of MBS IMP um, criteria, all of them were better in the cohort of patients who had had gabapentin. And so the concept is if you can control the pain, they're able to swallow more and therefore able to maintain function better. Mm -hmm. um, wow. We then looked at the same cohort a year later. Now we didn't have a historical cohort to compare them to, but there are a lot of studies in the literature that, that report swallowing function in patients a year out from treatment. Mm -hmm. And the outcomes in that cohort of patients were also superior to patients treated with normal narcotics. So we treat everyone with prophylactic gabapentin um, and we, we don't have as many pain issues as I had in the early part of my career. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so I want about that that standard of care now, like, yeah. like not just where you practice, but, um, nationally or internationally. It's a great question. Um, it, you know, when I came here, they weren't doing it. They didn't believe in it. And I said, can you give it a try? Like here, read the paper, talk to Dr. Kwan if you need to, but give it a shot. And it's total standard of care here now. Once once they saw the outcomes, there there was no turning back. 
you know, it's one of those things that surprisingly hasn't caught on as well. I would say there are places um, where it is definitely standard of care, and most of those places are your academic medical centers. Um, but I think the word isn't really out there enough, despite me getting on my soapbox about gabapentin every time I can. Um, on PubMed, it, like the, it was published, it looks like 2014 and 2017, and we'll definitely be sure to attach these articles to the podcast when it's published, because um, that's really, I think, you know, more than anything, it, it really speaks to, I mean, not just yay gabapentin, but it speaks to the value in, in communicating across disciplines and having a multidisciplinary team because, you know, without that conversation, I mean, maybe a radiation oncologist wouldn't even know that that's an issue that needs to be addressed, right? If they're not dealing with swallowing and you're saying, hey, oh my gosh, my patients are not having as much pain and they're tolerating their diets. This is making their quality of life better. It's their functional outcomes better. Without being able to have that conversation, people don't even know what the problems are. Right. And, and maybe there's there's things to fix it. So I think it really just speaks to um, advocating for our our profession and, and what um, what the types of things are that we're seeing that are important that just need to be communicated. Right. Yeah. Can I, we go ahead, Heather? I was just going to say it. I often when I when I do present at places um, and talk about gabapentin, oftentimes the speech pathologist does go back to the radiation oncologist and say, hey, have you heard about this? Are you interested in this? And inevitably, I then get a follow-up email from that speech pathologist saying, the radiation oncologist says this sounds great, but they have lots of questions. And, you know, as I've told everybody else, if the radiation oncologist is interested but has questions, have them reach out to me or the radiation oncologist here at Stanford or Harry Quanit at, um, at Hopkins because I really do think that this has been a huge game changer for our patients. Mm -hmm. And if you can manage the pain, you can keep them eating, you can have them do exercises. And adherence in this population is so challenging if you can't control that pain. So for me, yeah. it's one of the hugest practice changing um, pieces that I've seen in my career. That is so fascinating to me because a lot of people talk about another unique aspect about this population is the regular visits, right? So the data, in my opinion, coming from head and neck cancer pop, uh, studies, and obviously you've contributed, but so has Kate Hutchinson, um, where, they t where they're able to track the patients just by virtue of having such an extensive experience, medical experience. It is a known phenomenon that they come back regularly, just like folks with neurodegenerative disease, right? So you guys get a chance to really track these things in ways that you don't see so much in someone who's had a stroke and then been unleashed on the community with no real reason to come back other than a recurring stroke. Um, but interestingly, I, you know, a lot of people are probably expecting to hear you say that the biggest problem with these patients is aberrant bolus flow, be it um, aspiration or residue. Um, and in fact, I heard the first time I heard the term walkie talkies was from an ENT, and I forget where it was, it's many, many years ago. And this idea that you have these um, younger, often younger without dementia individuals who are ambulatory, who uh, can manage a lot of um, aspiration. And um, that doesn't seem to be, based on what you're saying, to be the bigger issue with maintaining nutrition and hydration as much as that pain um, that you were talking about. Can you talk a little bit more about the aspiration issue and how you guys seem to tolerate weight better than some of the folks in the neuro populations do as clinicians? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, and I think what I'm, what I was talking about and when I'm talking about pain is primarily sort of the during treatment. Yeah. Uh, period of time. Um, and as patients are going through treatment, it's pretty uncommon for them to develop true dysphagia. Okay. It does happen, but I would say it's it's very uncommon. Really what we're dealing with more than anything else is managing their acute side effects. So managing the pain, cheerleading them through their exercises, keeping them eating, um, helping them, you know, work through the other issues like taste and dry mouth. Um, but but you're right, and that's sort of two of my other three big points. One of them is that we're dealing almost exclusively with a cognitively normal population. Mm -hmm. Now, there are exceptions, um, but most of our patients are walkie-talkies, and they, especially now that we're seeing the epidemic of HPV, 
um, a lot of our patients are younger. There are definitely people who are still out, you know, productive and in the workforce. So it's a very different population than I would see in a neuro unit when I worked at the VA. And so when we look at these patients, not only are they more cognitively able to undertake all of the complex things that we're asking them to do, but they also are a healthier host to begin with. And so their risk for complications is significantly lower than patients who are in a nursing home or who have had a stroke and have all of these other significant medical comorbidities. And so in our population, very commonly, we know our patients are going to aspirate. We don't stop them eating. That's the worst thing we can do because then we take away their ability to maintain structural integrity, to maintain functional integrity, and to maintain that sort of patterning of adjusting to the swallow as things are changing. So it's extraordinarily rare that I ever recommend NPO status for a patient because even if they're aspirating, unless it's dramatic. There are definitely those patients for whom it is a dramatic amount of aspiration and they have other risk factors. These individuals, we know they're going to aspirate and we work to minimize it and we work to minimize the risk associated with it. So we do a lot of talking about oral hygiene and minimizing bacterial colonization and getting up and around and making sure that they're moving their body so that they're able to, you know, facilitate pulmonary clearance. Um, and, and, you know, we don't see in those patients who we, you know, are able to risk stratify and look at them and say, this is a young, healthy person. We don't need to be very um, conservative with those folks. We need to push them because what we don't want to do is create a swallowing handicap by being overly conservative at a critical period. Also, there's the micronutrients that I was um, informed about. Um, if you recall, we had the swallowing t think tank at the University of Florida, and you came out, and the other person, as I mentioned before, Kate, who's an expert in this area, mentioned the importance of mi micronutrients, which are essential for maintaining nutrition and uh, thus recovery. So we certainly don't want them to stop eating the kinds of foods that they can take orally, where you're going to have more fiber, et cetera, as opposed to the softer foods, or uh, ensure that's directly... Um, uh, right in their uh, in their peg, in those situations, they're not quite getting the same kind of nutrition, and then they can't really recover the same way. Absolutely, yeah. We try to keep people on as as normal of a diet as long as possible, mm -hmm. and uh, we work with our dietitians. So yet another wonderful opportunity for multidisciplinary care. Mm -hmm. um, we do work very closely with our dietitians, and you know. Uh, Stanford's sort of a unique place. You know, we live in the middle of, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, and we have a very, um, a very savvy population of patients who are, you know, most of them want to be on organic or keto or, you know, something or another. So it, it adds a level of challenge. But we do have people here who are um, certainly very focused on trying to do that, which, which does make our job easier. I know that uh, it was not as easy to do in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So I just have to say, um, tell me what you guys think about this. So it's just, I, I wish, Heather, that your philosophy, and not just you, but speech pathologists that practice with the head and neck cancer population, I hear this from everybody that, that works with this population, you know, what you said was, we know our patients are going to aspirate, we know that, and but our priority is to keep them eating for as long as possible because NPO really is not an option for these patients. It's just not good for them. And I just can't help but think, why can't we have this approach with all patients? Like, why can't that be the philosophy? I really believe, and, and shoot me down or tell me what you guys think about this, but it, it seems like from what you're saying is that the NPO is the exception. It's not the rule. The philosophy of, of um, really pushing patients as hard as you can, maintaining their PO status. I believe that that doesn't have to be something that's unique to head and neck cancer patients. I think that the majority of patients that have dysphagia globally would benefit from that approach. That of course, that there's instances where, like you said, that NPO status is necessary, that there are other factors that are involved. But there's a lot of stroke patients, there's a lot of ALS patients, there's a lot of Parkinson's patients 
that would benefit from the same mentality that head and neck clinicians approach their patients. And I wish that there was a culture shift globally, not just within head and neck cancer. And I, I'm wondering what you think about that. If you think the philosophy should be translated among other populations and that this should be our approach, not just in head and neck cancer. Well, I can say that, you know, this is, this is my opinion, um, that in our field, I think we tend to be a bit risk averse. I think that, I don't know about you guys, but there was only one class where I was told, if you do something wrong, you'll kill a patient. That was mm -hmm. my dysphagia class. Mm -hmm. So when we set people up from the beginning to think you could kill somebody, you know, it's going to make people risk averse, especially um, younger clinicians. And I think that where we really failed a lot is in being so risk averse that we don't really think about risk stratification. We just go, oops, penetration, therefore risk of aspiration, therefore NPO, and, and we're really doing our patients a disservice there. Whereas, you know, we should be looking at it and going, well, number one, we shouldn't make anybody NPO for penetrating, but that's my own soapbox. But that's definitely not your own soapbox. <laughs> we're all on the, we're on this, you know, we're on a stage called a soapbox together, guys. Yes. Yes. But, you know, <laughs> we have to look at we have to look at the, the overall health of the host. We have to look at all of these other factors. We know there are factors that are associated with pneumonia and, and we need to be looking at those things and not just saying, well, if aspiration, then NPO, because it's, you know, I think your last podcast with the patient where he talked about NPO being a death sentence. I mean, you know, we do this to our patients and we need it's our responsibility as skilled, trained, educated clinicians to not just follow a formula and to actually really look and think about what's the real risk of this patient. So I have a couple of thoughts on that and then I'm going to um, at throw out what my new soapbox is. So I'm wondering a couple of things because you're right that the general training is you could kill somebody, you could kill somebody, but that applies to the folks who end up in head and neck cancer too, yet somehow they end up making what seems to be a culture shift. So let me ask you this. Could it be the following? One, you're dealing with a population of young people, maybe primarily males, and the thought of keeping them from life is different from perhaps an 80-year-old who's on his fourth stroke, who seems more frail. So maybe there's the population and their willingness and ability to ask questions and they're not demented so they can say, no, hell no, I want to eat this and I want to eat that. Let me have a couple pneumonias in my life. If I get to eat that, I'm still young. Could it also be that the recovery is not the primary goal? So if somebody comes in with a stroke, all we think about is recovery across the board, getting better, getting better, getting better. Whereas in your area, you all, uh, your your team is going to impact the person and perhaps make things worse for a while. So you're gearing up for the worst. And at this point, the worst is not a little bit of aspiration. It's a lot of other things. And so the risk associated with the things that are done in folks with head and neck cancer and in that team are quite different from the goal of stroke, for instance, which is recovery, recovery, recovery. Um, and so I'm wondering if those kinds of things make the culture of, of SLPs who initially were trained avoid aspiration at all costs, when they go in this 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 location, they're like, oh my God, that is not the only thing we should ever care about. Yeah, I think those are good points. I think the other thing that I would add to that is the physicians that we work with. So mm -hmm. ENTs tend to be, um, generally speaking, very much wanting patients to eat. Yeah. They don't care if their patients are aspirating. Yeah. So if you look at an ENT patient versus somebody who's being managed by a pulmonary doctor, mm -hmm. there's a very different mentality about what aspiration means. And so I think that when you're working with ENTs who are constantly saying, I don't care if they're aspirating, get them eating, yeah. do what you can, mm -hmm. minimize the risk. Right. It helps, gives you the permission mm -hmm. to say, I should think about like, do I really need to be conservative with this patient? So I think part of it is that too, is, is the... Because when I started working in head and neck, most of the patients I worked with were still old. Again, I was working in the VA. So most of my head and neck patients were still 80-year-old, you know, grizzly old guys. Um, <laughs> and, and still we would be much more or much less conservative with those folks. So there is definitely a piece of, of the age and the patient mm -hmm. um, 
self-advocacy. I We have a lot of patients. I could put somebody on thick and liquids. I guarantee you they're going to walk out and they're never going to take them. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is that piece as well um, that I think comes into play, especially with our younger HPV patients. Sure. I think they they are definitely going to be the ones who are out there becoming very skilled, knowledgeable consumers. They're going to look at the research. They're going to look um, and, and understand things. And they're not going to take NPO status unless there's a real darn good reason for it. Right. It's uh, sure. it's exactly what um, Jim was saying in the last podcast, which is it should be the last resort. But they you know, because of your education, uh, to his point in the previous podcast, I suspect your population understands the peg can be temporary as opposed to a death sentence. Same with NPO, uh, because uh, you guys can say, look, our goal is to get this out of you as quickly as possible, just like any other thing we might put in you temporarily. Um, but let me let me get to my soapbox, because you said something that reminded me of it, which is, and this is my new soapbox. So ding, ding, ding. Okay, here we go. So <laughs> You talked about, oh, no penetration, therefore there must be aspiration, therefore there will be pneumonia, which is, and then you said that's one of the, your soapboxes. And I now have this thing that I've been talking about recently, which is, are we doing the same thing with residue? So what I'm asking you is, is residue a thing? So here's, hear me out on this one. Is it possible, <laughs> is it possible that residue is, you know, two, a couple things can happen. One is, residue happens and it can be aspirated later, right? That's one thing that can happen. The other thing that can happen is residue happens and they never clear it out. Or residue can happen and they regurgitate it. You've seen these people just like upchuck it and just take it out, right? Across those domains, there's various issues that could happen. But really, we seem to freak out more about residue that tend that is going to be eventual aspiration. So do we freak out about residue because one, it's isn't it just delayed aspiration in and of itself? Is it really that important? And in fact, has any study ever shown that there is a true medical consequence associated with residue? Not residue that eventually becomes aspiration, but the residue itself, like sitting there catching, collecting dust or bacteria. We know that with aspiration, that there are medical consequences that can happen. You can end up with pneumonia, right? You can't, those things can happen. But is there any study showing that there is a medical consequence associated with just residue? Or are we only measuring it because we have an artifact of imaging, meaning we had to turn flora off and it wasn't gone away and what, what could happen to it? We're freaking out. Did they did they throw it up? Did they, is it still sitting there? Did it go down the, the wrong tube eventually? But still, there's still medical, is there a medical consequence associated with residue in any way? What do you think? So residue is is probably the one of the primary sort of hallmark features of, of swallowing and head and neck cancer patients, regardless of whether they've had surgery or radiation. It, you know, residue is, if you don't have residue, you probably didn't have head and neck cancer. Wow. Um, okay. So you know, we see a ton of residue. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I am unaware of any study specifically looking at medical repercussions of residue, mm -hmm. other than, like you said, if it's related to aspiration. The only thing I can think of that could potentially be another medical consequence of residue would be in somebody who's retaining pills and mm -hmm. those pills are dissolving and they end up with some sort of caustic injury from sure. the medication. Mm -hmm. Other than that, uh, you know, I have never seen anything to indicate they're more prone to infection or any other issues. So, I mean, to me, I see residue of pretty significant amounts pretty consistently. And I, you know, obviously I treat it, but I don't really, you know, make really big decisions based on residue alone. It's really the, what are the repercussions of the residue? And, and I think that, you know, here's a, here's a time where I would really advocate for fees because you, yep. one of the things like you said, you turn off fluoro, oh my God, what might happen? And the assumption is, well, if there's a lot of residue on that MBS, then over the course of the meal, certainly it's going to build up and certainly they're going to aspirate. Well, we have a way that we can watch somebody over the course of a meal and really test what's happening with mm -hmm. that residue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have a scope in somebody's nose as long as they're willing to tolerate it. Right. I had one in 15 minutes this morning, you know, and you can, you can, plow as much food in that person as possible and you really can see is there truly a consequence or not so I think if you have somebody that 
you know, a clinician is thinking, well, the residue seems scary and risky. Mm -hmm. Well, there are ways to look at whether or not there becomes a consequence over time. And with more realistic foods as opposed to barium-laden foods. So if I understand what you're saying, it maybe it maybe proves the point that if in your population residue is as um, common as anything else, yet despite this, there there is still not any no uh, sort of co or group of studies showing that residue in and of itself has a medical complication, then so much so a, a clinician who's dealing with you know stroke or something where it's not a hallmark should probably be even more, even less uh, conservative about there is residue, therefore there could be aspiration, therefore they could, um, you know, have a problem. Because to me, in that case, residue is kind of just delayed aspiration. So we're not, it's not, you know, if that makes sense, it's just like, are we looking at the residue or are we looking at the aspiration? Because I, I can't seem to parse the two out in those situations. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell yeah, you, I mean, if I have a stroke and somebody makes me MPO because I have residue, you better darn well prove to me that I was going to aspirate that residue. Right. <laughs> and know? that aspiration is even a problem. Were, who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? yep. Like how bad, I mean, I feel like, I've, I mean, I've seen a million patients, right? Like how many times has residue been so bad that they're just drowning in aspiration because they can't get rid of their residue? Like never, like even in even in really severe populations, I feel like residue is is very overemphasized, mm -hmm. I'll say. So much so that um, we have a lot of ways to measure the intricacies of it without any evidence that it has a, a true medical complication. And I would, I would, I would include, you mentioned pills. I, I have an issue with our lack of regard for obstruction and, and asphy asphyxiation, people actually really choking. But I still ask many people in swallowing this, how many of your patients have actually um, choked and our pill went in the trachea or something like that? And very few people actually say, oh my God, I see it at least once a month. So I don't, you know, I, even that situation where I'd say that would be something bad because they're going to, they'll die really quickly. I don't know that residue is an issue. I, you know, again, I can hear all the people screaming, but residue, but residue. It's like, okay, well, show me, show me your data showing that what happens to these individuals. You don't have it for the aspiration. So you probably don't have it for the residue. Sure. I mean, I think, I think a population that where residue becomes a little bit more, noteworthy is in a population that's really susceptible to um, fatigue. Sure. So like sure. ALS population or patients that have like myasthenia gravis or these populations where it's very detrimental for them to swallow 20 to 25 times per bolus. Like mm -hmm. it's just the inefficiency is profound. And now you're really talking about needing to get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of calories. Um, Which is why they also have so, prophylactic pegs. I mean, in that that, that population is pretty yeah. similar to head and neck cancer because they know that's the case. Um, again, I, I agree with you though. Issue. Say it again. And that's a true like efficiency issue in terms like really the word efficiency. Like it's just not efficient. Mm -hmm. It's not really an aspiration issue as much as it is sure. being able sure. to get adequate nutrition mm -hmm. and. Um, so to me, that's a little bit of a different issue mm -hmm. um, that most diagnoses don't encounter that type of true fatigue that... Except doesn't that population, population. doesn't that population, um, you know, heard a lot of things I've been reading, they talk a lot about how that population ends up dying of aspiration pneumonia more than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's still the aspiration. I'm, I'm not saying that maintaining life and nutrition and the capacity to eat and that residue can make everything take longer is not a significant quality of life and, and nutrition and, you know, medical issue in that sure. population. I'm just saying I haven't seen a study yet where de residue has been shown to be the thing that's doing that. I, I know that we're making a connection in our head that, well, if they have to swallow this many times, they could be tired and they might not finish their meal. And then it could be the reason why blah, 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 blah. I'm just saying, show me the studies 
where individual yeah. with significantly more residue under certain boluses and require this many more swallows and get this much through the UES versus not that much through um, tend to have these issues more than others. Otherwise, we're still sort of like wringing our hands and saying, but the residue could mean these things. Sure. Well, if it takes somebody 25 times to get a bolus down in an ALS patient, typically they're going to have an alternative means of nutrition. They're going to have a peg to supplement that. So it's really hard to, to control for that and to, to tease it out. But it's, you know, just th thought I would I would note that. Yeah, but I, I agree. I mean, in general with patients and I, I think that um, I think residue is, is probably um, I, I would put it more in the category of penetration. Yeah, that it's not that we don't don't pay attention to it, and it's. But it, I think that we need to be careful about making profound decisions that alter, um, you know, diets or alter treatment or alter mm -hmm. anything based on purely what their residue status is. It reminds me of people who have a lot of almost falls, but never really fall. And it's like, you could look at them and be like, Lord have mercy, this person looks like they're on ice all the time, but they never fall. And then you put them in a wheelchair because, well, you slip, you almost fall a lot. But they might high fall risk. Exactly. <laughs> and when they do, they're going to go down like a bag of uh, bricks and hurt their head. But you're then, you know, sure. going crazy over these almost falls. So anyway, I'm done with my soapbox. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's where that whole concept of risk stratification comes in, right? Like we, we can't just look at a symptom seen on a swallow study and let that 100% guide a major decision. We have to look at all of the different factors that are influencing the right. risk for that patient. And I, I'm with you. I mean, I don't, we should not be making dramatic decisions based on penetration or residue. Right. Prove prove that there's a consequence. Yeah, or same with aspiration. I would say prove, I wouldn't go as far as saying prove, I would say risk stratification um, should help you to determine whether or not you, the likelihood of a consequence is there. And of course, patient's ability to communicate their wishes. Um, so I, I think that's that's all really good. I have a, a question, but I want to know if Alicia, did you, have, did you want to jump in? Because I had sort of a um, yeah, I just wanted to make one yeah. more note about that. And I think I think just to kind of summarize this whole last 15 minute conversation is that the, the reality is that the, the aspiration, the penetration, the residue, all of these things are really just markers for just showing us where the real problem is. Yeah. It's it's really just identifying where the physiology breakdown is occurring so that that helps to show us where we can um, tailor our treatment to to make it so that these bolus consequences aren't happening anymore. Of course, we don't want patients to aspirate. We don't want patients to have a lot of residue because it's uncomfortable. Right. And it's, right. you know, we don't need to have it. And I think we need to just stop focusing on treating those boluses and just accept that these, the aspiration, the penetration, the residue is just showing us where the, helping to show us where the impairment is so that we can get the patient back to functional capacity. Exactly. Um, and that's and then I'll stand, I'll stand off my soapbox now. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Heather, you mentioned some things that are that sound really bad, right? So, ototoxicity and taste and saliva and nutrition and pain. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, as a clinician who's seen a lot, I mean, we've all seen people say, "Guys, if I get dysphagia, just kill me because I don't want a blob an SLP telling me I can't." do whatever, because we've seen what happens. Is there any kind of diagnosis where you're like, look, I have seen this. I'm just going to not undergo this treatment. I just, I already know what's going to happen. And I have made a decision that I will just struggle or I will just die. What, is there anything where you're like, no, that's just not going to happen for me? You know, I think that there probably aren't very many things that I would think of that way, but I think that is such a like personality piece too, right? Got it, yeah. I mean, there are procedures that I know, like, man, I'd have to think real hard, like a total glossectomy, total laryngectomy. That'd be pretty hard for me to, to, to take on because mm -hmm. it is really challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we have some, you know, major composite resections with radiation where patients are, you know, have very low probability of returning to eating. And I, I can't imagine a life without eating. I am a live to eat person. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think at the end of the day for me, because I know that with a really good, multidisciplinary team and a really dedicated rehab specialist, mm -hmm. 
you can have very meaningful life even in those really extreme situations. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a motivated patient, it doesn't matter how much you chop away, that person's going to find a reason to live. And I would hope that if and when I ever develop a head and neck cancer, I will be in that mind space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe you will be because it'll be so secondhand to you in terms of the kinds of things you've seen. Um, Right. Right. And you'd be like, gosh, I've been motivating my patients forever. I have to motivate myself. Right. Do you have probably more scared of other things like ALS or, you know, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Alicia, do you have any closing thoughts or questions? I thought this was one of the most informative um, down the hatches we've had because you are obviously very, very well versed in this. You speak so clearly that um, I think these complex concepts are really well understood by anyone listening. There are probably a lot of people in your area who know this, who are head nodding really hard. So, you know, like head banging. Um, But then you have other people like me who I've heard you talk about these things. And it's just a nice reminder of how important it is to have a clinician in these. Maybe you don't think of them as niche populations, but I kind of do. Because, you know, in most of our courses and my dysphagia course, I bring somebody in like Love Paula Sullivan for instance, she'll come in and she'll do the lecture on head and neck. And it, there's so much, we can't even get through it. It deserves its own class. Same with pediatric dysphagia. So I really appreciate how, how plainly you can speak about these things. I personally want to hear more of Heather's soapboxes. But <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I guess in closing, you know, I think with head and neck cancer, one of the biggest soapboxes that that triggers me, and, and you spoke to it, is just the, um, you know, really just pushing patients and not being overly conservative and, and having them eat and just the benefits that we see in the publications and the research and, and just through patient reports of how much better their outcomes are by taking that approach. I think we've, we've kind of beat that. Um, beat that down quite a bit in this podcast, but is there, in closing, is there anything else that you feel like you stand on your soapbox about or anything else that you wish you could disseminate to all clinicians and how they approach either this population or how they approach patients in general and in the field of speech pathology? You've, you've been practicing for a really long time. You have a lot of really good insight into how the field has changed over the years. And I'm just curious if there's anything else that you... Um, kind of want to put out there. Yeah, you know, I think that sort of the last thing I would say um, is that, you know, we have a a really big responsibility. We We are treating really important facets of the human condition, right? We, we treat communication and, and eating, and these are really important things for our patients. And I think Jim highlighted that really nicely in your last Um, podcast. And so I think it's, you know, we are really responsible for knowing what we're doing, really having a good solid rationale for what we're doing, understanding the physiology of what we're treating, making sure that what we're doing is actually having an effect, advocating for patients, working with the physicians, and not being, you know, not being scared to do so. Be assertive, be, you know, be the expert and and you will find that you can really have a bigger impact, not just for your own patients, but for other patients by training other clinicians outside of speech pathology about the importance of what we do. And I think we have an opportunity to do that. And I think we don't always take that opportunity. And by being overly conservative and, and not always having a good solid rationale for what we're doing, um, we weaken ourselves. And so I would just really advocate for clinicians to, you know, find ways to get the information. You know, things like this podcast are fantastic. They'll get you thinking in different ways. Um, but but don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid um, to go head to head with the physicians when you think something doesn't make sense. But make sure you know why you're doing that. Um, and, and, you know, just always keeping in mind how critical what we do is for these patients. So kill them with competence is what you're saying. You got it. Um, Ooh, does, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> also, does anybody else have the Yo Gabba Gabba theme song in their head ever since you said Gabba? And <laughs> I just cannot get it out of my head. And then at one point, Alicia, you said, yay, Gabba. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't get it out. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> well, Heather, it's been great having you. 
Um, we're, we're just really glad that you could uh, come on. I have a feeling we're going to have to have a part two on just like laryngectomies mm -hmm. or something like that because yeah. they're oh, so, yeah. right? We we're such nerds. We're like, oh my God, laryngectomies. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, a lot of fun. I'm happy to do it anytime. Of course. All right. Thanks again. We'll be in touch. Bye. Thanks, Heather. Yo, Gabba Gabba!